episode eight, free Bitcoin, electronic and digital monies. Quote, there is a remarkable close parallel between the problems of the physicist and those of the cryptographer. The system on which a message is enciphered corresponds to the laws of the universe, the intercepted message to important constants which have to be determined. The correspondence is very close, but the subject matter of cryptography is very easily dealt with by discrete machinery, physics not so easily, close quotes, and Turing. Quote, Paper money is traceable and perishable and has other drawbacks. Electronic banknotes are fast and anonymous. What's an electronic banknote look like, Randy? Like any other digital thing, a bunch of bits. Doesn't that make it kind of easy to counterfeit? Not if you have good crypto, Randy says. Which we do. How did you get it? By hanging out with maniacs. What kind of maniacs? Maniacs who think that having good crypto is of near apocalyptic importance. Close quotes. Cryptonicon, Neil Stevenson, 1999. Introduction. Pre-Bitcoin, internet monies had been to some extent theorised before Satoshi. But for such a radical technology and a society changing as Bitcoin, there has been shockingly little concept of them in science fiction. Why is this instructive? Well, over the past 100 years, science fiction has predicted many of the society-changing inventions we live with every day. Rockets, 3D printers, smartphones, and even computing. But the internet itself has largely been ignored by much of science fiction. The social implications of what the internet unleashed were probably just far, far too complex to predict. So by extension of this, any sort of internet or computer money was largely not imagined by those whose job it is often to predict the future, with the possible exception, that is, of Neil Stevenson. If we were to take the two biggest science fiction franchises of recent years, it's a microcosm of how monetary networks have been overlooked in how they approach future concepts of money. Star Wars has galactic credits, which are perhaps closer to central bank digital currencies than anything else. So worthless are these credits in areas not under the direct control of the Galactic Republic that Watto refuses to accept them for the parts Qui-Gon needs, as he wants real money, which one can imagine being some form of monetary metal. You might say that Star Trek could contain a more theoretical background to Bitcoin's approach to money, with talk of achieving a post-money, post-scarcity society in a utopian future. Some of the more theoretical Bitcoiners believe that Bitcoin will make such a change in how we view wealth, indeed leading to a sort of post-money society, the type of which Jean-Luc Picard talks about in Star Trek First Contact. But I would say that's something of a stretch. Picard mentions nothing of an internet currency, or of a money that solves the problem of money itself. He doesn't say how the solution of allowing humans to achieve infinite demand is created by digitally creating a fixed supply of money. And of course he doesn't. The film was made in the mid-1990s, 
and the closest we got to an insight into what future money would look like are vague notions of cryptographic payments taking place through the banking system. Indeed, I think it's something of an aberration that science fiction of even today largely ignores the more revolutionary aspects of the internet. Science fiction has focused much more on hardware of the future, like spaceships, weapons and lightsabers. Even the replicator of Star Trek are glorified 3D printers. But the more revolutionary aspects of the internet, the internet which is still the most advanced technology on the planet and its decentralising of the world, leading to an increasingly utopian future, is something less well explored in science fiction. Instead, we've been barraged for two decades now with constant dystopia and depressing science fiction, which ignores any positive benefits of technology. The exception of this is the work of Neil Stevenson, who was perhaps the forerunner of the digital revolution in science fiction. He was the inventor of the term metaverse, which is now part of everyday vocabulary. So we'll get to the work of Stevenson later in the podcast. But I think the lack of internet-based science fiction is in part because the internet is just too advanced for mankind to quite get our heads around. It's still mind-boggling that billions of humans are only a mere click away, despite actually being thousands of miles apart. You can send information, data, and almost anything at a click of a button. And of course, before Bitcoin and the Lightning Network, the only information you couldn't really send across the world in a digitally native manner was money itself. Instead, one would have to use wire transfers by sending a swift payment, which, for a digital native, is about as bad as technology in the modern form gets. There have been several books and films that contemplated various parts of the internet, but most are tangentially related to the internet at best. Something like Ready Player One is more about the metaverse than anything else, while of course Black Mirror focuses on the negative aspects of what could happen with technology and the internet. So I would say that the internet is still not a concept well understood or explored. All of this has not been to say that concepts about internet or electronic money did not exist before Bitcoin. Of course it did, but they were deep underground and never broke the internet apart with their radical nature. Histories of revolutions almost always contain a preamble. The British revolutions of the 17th century will have a preamble, something about the centuries-old disputes between the various parliaments, the commoners, the barons, and the tyranny of the kings. Any French revolutionary history will have a preamble on Jean-Baptiste Colbert as first minister of state under Louis XIV as he tried to balance the books in the 17th century after massive state overspend by the Sun King. The failure to balance the books resulted in a century-long deficit and ever more centralisation as the French monarchy pushed and pushed its citizens to try and repay its own debts. Until, of course, on the 14th of July, 1789, the peasants and artisans and some aristocrats buckled and revolted. The Russian Revolution does not start with Lenin or Stalin but with a centuries-long persecution and mistreatment of the serfs. 
So where does this start, the monetary revolution? Well, it starts with the solution to the problem, not the problem itself. The problem itself of monetary mismanagement, manipulation through debt, and the centralisation of wealth goes back millennia, even back to the fall of Babylon. Yet the solution to all of this, namely a form of electronic money, goes back to the two most brilliant men of the 20th century. They too had solved major problems in society and the United States. The United States was a vast area, and the horse and cart was too slow to travel, and for most people a train was too far away and not convenient enough. By train, you could travel cross-country and even get city to city, but getting town to town, or even to the nearest town, was far more difficult and time-consuming. Henry Ford, therefore, popularised a decentralising technology, giving more power to travel for all and eventually leading to more freedom. Henry Ford, of course, popularised the automobile. He also theorised about the nature of money. Yet from my study of pre-Bitcoin internet currencies, the invention of Bitcoin is of unique genius. Of course, Satoshi built on what came before. But these were centralised theories of internet monies, of digital payments native to the internet, but through institutions and stakeholders. Currencies, in short, similar to what central bank digital currencies propose. What astonished me in researching this episode is just how much of a conceptual invention Bitcoin had to be in order to be so revolutionary. So let's go straight to Ford's prediction of electronic money. The plan isn't, as you will hear, the most thought out and fixed idea. It is a simple proposal to replace gold money with electric money and a monetary system backed by economic output. Ford wanted to move from one epoch of man to another through this new money. One could say Ford invented proof of work pre-computing. If you're active in the Bitcoin community, you may have seen the headline of this article before. I have seen the article in screenshot form floating around quite a bit, and the article is referenced a fair amount, but I'd never read the entire article until I started researching the article for this episode. So I'm going to read out the whole article. As I think it's fair to state, it was probably the first time electric money was proposed. Quote, 4th of December, 1921, New York Tribune. Headline, Ford would replace gold with energy currency and stop wars. Subtitle, declares if government will give him Muscle Shoals plant, he can demonstrate success of a plan to substitute natural wealth basis of world's money. Article, Florence, Alabama. December the 3rd. Henry Ford and Thomas A. Edison arrived here today to inspect the Muscle Shoals nitrate plant, which the Detroit automobile manufacturer proposes to take over from the government. And almost immediately, Mr. Ford declared the purpose of his vast new project. It is not to make money or primarily to stimulate the employment of a million men now idle, or to make the South an industrial centre. 
His purpose, he said, is to end all wars forever. Henry Ford, by building the world's greatest power plant here, on the Tennessee River, expects to eliminate gold as the basis of world wealth and substitute it for something different, the units of power. And by doing this, he said, war would cease, for gold is the cause of war. It's very simple when you analyse it, said Mr Ford. The cause of all wars is gold. We shall demonstrate to the world two things. First, the practicability. Second, the desirability of displacing gold as the basis of currency and substituting in its place the world's imperishable natural wealth. Almost everybody in the world, except the newspapers and the bankers, recognises that civilization has entered on a new era. The newspapers don't want to see it. It would mean changes in world finance, and the bankers always oppose changes. There is a group of international bankers who, today, control the bulk of the world's gold supply. No matter what country they, as individuals, claim allegiance, they all play the same game, to keep the gold they have in their own hands and to get just as much more as possible. With the international banks, the fostering, starting and fighting of a war is nothing more nor less than creating an active market for money, a business transaction. If the different countries of the international groups are at war, that makes no difference. No matter who loses the war, there have been a great many loans. The gold system always wins. The young men from 18 to 30 fight the war and are maimed and killed. The internationalists are safe and prosperous. Ten years ago I said I intended to put every ounce of brains and energy in me to stopping war. I never meant anything more earnestly, and that's why I want muscle shoals. I see a way which, if it can be done, will do more to end war than a thousand years of agitation. The essential evil in gold in its relation to war is the fact that it can be controlled. Break the control and you stop war. And the simple way to break the control of these international bankers, the way to end the exploitation of humanity forever, is to remove gold as a basis for the currency of the world. Army engineers say it will take $13 million to complete the big dam. But Congress is economical just now, and not in the mood to raise money by taxation. The customary alternative is 30-year bonds at 4%. The United States, the greatest government in the world, wishing a pesky $30 million to complete a great public benefit, is forced to go to the money sellers. But your plan would upset the money system of the world and might work incalculable harm, it was remarked to Mr Ford. Not necessarily, not at all. We need not abolish anything. We need not even abolish the gold standard. Simply forget that there is such thing as a gold standard, and whenever the government needs money for a great, serviceable and profitable public improvement, instead of thinking of bonds with their heavy dragger interest charges, think of redeemable, non-interest-bearing currency. But have you worked out a standard of value? Mr Ford was asked. Yes, we have. 
We will have that ready when Congress wishes to hear about this plan. The standard American dollar is approximately 120th of an ounce of gold. Under the currency system, the standard would be a certain amount of energy exerted for one hour. That would be equal to one dollar. It's simply a case of thinking and calculating in terms different from those laid down to us by the International Banking Group, to which we have grown so accustomed that we think there is no other desirable standard. But how is this all going to stop wars? Simply because, if tried here at Muscle Shoals, this plan will prove so overwhelmingly and successful that the American people will never again consent to the issuance of interest-bearing bonds for internal improvement. When the government needs money, it will raise it by issuing currency against its natural wealth. Other currencies seeing the success will do likewise. The function of the money seller will have disappeared. No matter what becomes of this suggestion, I shall act so that no money speculator will make anything out of muscle shoals, even if I have to take up the whole bond issue myself. Mr Ford's plan, including completing the muscle shoals dam in a sense for nothing, Mr Ford says the United States should issue currency to the amount of $30 million and thereby pay for the dam, but would make several marked changes between the Muscle Shoals currency and that which is ordinarily secured by gold held in the United States Treasury. Mr Ford proposes that this currency be issued only to a certain definitive amount and for a specific purpose, that is, the completion of Muscle Shoals. Second, he proposes to back up the Muscle Shoals currency by an entirely new unit of value. There is the best security in the world in this river, which is capable of furnishing a million horsepower, said Mr Ford. It has been here for untold ages. It will be here as long as there is rain mountains to shed the rain into the river, the Detroit millionaire continued. This energy is productive of wealth and is imperishable. Now which is the more secure, this power and its development of the few barrels of gold necessary to make $30 million? This site with its power possibility will last long after the treasury building is a mass of ruins. This is the security upon which I believe we can base the currency for Muscle Shoals. What about the unit of values? he was asked. This will be worked out when Congress cares to hear about it, he replied. Under the energy currency system, the standard would be a certain amount of energy for one hour. That would be equal to one dollar. It is simply a case of calculating in different terms from those laid down to us by the international bankers. The only difference between this currency and the plan of issuing bonds to pay for the development here is that under my idea, there will not be any interest paid to Wall Street money merchants who do nothing to build the dam. These men deserve nothing and under this plan will get nothing. Foreign countries ought not to raise objection about accepting money based on Muscle Shoals. For Muscle Shoals is a national and not an international matter and the money would only be for use at home. 
Mr Ford's ideas on the way Congress will look at his revolutionary proposals are strong and vigorous. Close quotes. Article end. Now we can see from Ford's plan that it is hardly refined. It sounds like a speculative approach at best. There are vague references in trying to make electrical energy and tying it to one dollar of value. There were vague references to try and make this dollar payable instantly to workers without the need to concern Wall Street. So by tying production to electricity output by way of a dam over Muscle Shoals along the Tennessee River, it could tie the currency to production energy output rather than to gold, which was far too controlled by quote-unquote internationalists for Ford's liking. There was little concept in the article of how to directly tie energy output to the dollar, what the exchange rate would be from a horsepower or a watt to the dollar, nor how one could compute this in the days without computers. I'm sure you at home listening to that article could come up with a million problems with it, but here we are in the 2020s, the working Bitcoin, and so we can think up these problems with Ford's plan. It was quite revolutionary. It does not mean Ford's plan would have worked, but had he been brought to Congress to discuss it, and the US government gone through with the dam, I am sure the problems could have been ironed out. In another universe, the development of the electronic dollar would have been brought out, copied around the world, and led to a utopia avoiding the Second World War and the democides in the second half of the 20th century. And I still think it's fair to state, some form of Bitcoin too would have been developed later, even if Ford's plan had gone ahead. Instead, of course, the money problems got worse, even than they were in the 1930s. We even lost gold as a monetary standard and moved to pure fiat money, without even electricity output backing it. The worst of both worlds. So, after this plan, we see something of a lull in proposals about any new future monetary standard. I have a pet theory that Alan Turing came up with some form of proto-internet-based cryptographic currency before his death. He had such a profound knowledge of the computer and cryptography that he may have conceived of a way internet money could be processed through decentralised computing power backed by cryptographic devices. Of course, I have no idea about this. As I say, it's a pet theory. If he ever did conceive of such an idea, you can bet your life the paper Turing wrote on the subject would be under lock and key by way of the Officials' Secrets Act. Now, many inventions are, in some way, prophesied by science fiction long before they are technically possible. Electronic money has not really been pursued in science fiction other than in a credit of some form. Even the great and the good of imagining the future of the world never really expanded beyond the concept of credits. Asimov's Foundation series, Star Wars and Firefly, all use forms of credit, without ever conceiving of the idea of a digital asset. The lack of conception of a pure digital asset meant that there was a natural limitation to the conception of money in science fiction. The science fiction novel Alongside Night we talked about in the episode on agorism had this problem. 
where the only reliable form of money was gold, which even by the 1970s was old-fashioned and largely unusable. It makes science fiction of the libertarian bent far, far too dystopian, as the problems of fiat money and government excess are clear for all to see. Yet until Bitcoin, there were no solutions in which to deal with it. In Alongside Night, the entire United States government had to be destroyed from the ground up just to be able to create an economy based on gold and a more stable fiat currency. Anyway, it's a long time later in 1983, around the time computers were beginning to be a viable proposition in most homes, for perhaps the next major development in electronic money to be proposed. This has nothing to do with Ford's proposal of using electricity to provide a proof of work, but rather a looser proposal for a proto-crypto coin. I use the word crypto with some hesitation, as the name has been bastardised by all manner of shitcoins over the years, but I think it is the correct term, using levels of proto-cryptography to solve many problems Satoshi would later actually solve. In a paper published in 1983 called Untraceable Electronic Cash by three academics called David Chaum, Moni Noor and the brilliantly named Amos Fiat, Nominative Determinism in Action, they proposed a form of electronic cash, aimed at a new form of spending to complement credit cards which are, of course, traceable, and even banknotes with serial numbers. This system takes a brave step forward by proposing using cryptography to solve the problem of traceability, with mathematical logic not too dissimilar to that used by Satoshi, they propose ways to stop multiple spending using digital signatures. But this electronic cash is very much flawed, at least at our ears now. In this system, the bank still facilitates everything. It is untraceable electronic cash, but it still requires the banking sector play a huge role in everything. It is more like a private central bank digital currency than a decentralised cryptocurrency, yet this is not invaluable. It provides us some of the groundwork of what would happen later. This proposal was largely by David Chalm with input from others, and he went further and tried to implement the system into one of the world's first verifiable crypto coins called Digicash. Created in 1989, Digicash was an online currency designed to be as secure as cash was in the physical world. Digicash did not last long. Like a rafter of other startups that promised to rival the legacy payment networks, they all failed. Digicash failed because nobody would accept it. Commerce on the internet was seen to be flourishing with Amazon and eBay booming in the mid-90s but their payments were being processed by Visa and MasterCard, making commerce on the internet not yet as revolutionary as many were perhaps betting. It was little different to ordering via telephone. The point of these early internet currencies was that many believed ordinary people would dislike using cards over the internet. Yet, it turned out most didn't care. Digicash did this by using email to encrypt information from your bank and sending it to the merchant, while routing it through many other computers to hide its origins. 
Yet of course, Digicash never caught on. It had a mere 5,000 customers in its first three years, whose accounts totaled only $100,000. Merchants didn't like it because they wanted the data from their customers. And as the internet grew and grew, the hardcore libertarians on the internet were replaced by less sophisticated users, essentially normies who did not really care about their data being sold. Digicash filed for Chapter 11 in November 1998. It was not a great system, but it was a working pre-blockchain coin. It relied on making the banking sector fit better on the internet. Not a bad aim, but it never got going. In a different timeline, it could have happened that we all used Digicash to buy from Amazon through the mid-1990s. But the centralised financial services got there too quickly and improved their services to allow for easy payment online. All the while, merchants were happy to hoover up data from their customers. So Digicash failed, but clearly commerce on the internet was to be revolutionary if somebody could break the monopoly of the legacy payment networks. So where next in the adventure of pre-Bitcoin internet monies? Well, one of the most famous books in this space did predict it. Sovereign Individual, Mastering the Transition to the Information Age by William Rees Mogg and James Dale Davidson. The book doesn't merely hint at the future of the internet, but screams about how the information age, as the book labels it, will see revolutionary new types of money. This quote is probably the best highlighting how the theory was beginning to advance. Quote, As we explore later, inflation as revenue option will be largely foreclosed by the emergence of cyber money. New technologies will allow the holders of wealth to bypass the national monopolies that have issued and regulated money in the modern period. The state will continue to control the industrial era printing presses, but their importance for controlling the world's wealth will be transcended by mathematical algorithms that have no physical existence. In the new millennium, cyber money, controlled by private markets, will supersede fiat money issued by governments. Only the poor will be victims of inflation. Close quotes. The interesting thing about pre-Bitcoin internet currencies is just how bad much of the theory was. The sovereign individual gets the closest. Not merely stating there will be internet monies, but safe and secure stores of value on the internet too. While the sovereign individual predicted the broader moves of money natively onto the internet, it was around the same time in 1996 when the NSA showed the first real government interest in the future of money. They published a paper called How to Make a Mint, the Cryptography of Anonymous Electronic Cash. Now the NSA paper is very far off from predicting Bitcoin. It is still an extension of the Digicash idea that David Chalm had tried. It was certainly a development of the cryptography of internet money. And many of Bitcoin's cryptographic ideas are similar to what is in this paper, like using keys, hashing and digital signatures. But once again, the banking system is the root and branch of facilitating payments. In the NSA's model, it is the bank that verifies the digital signatures and enters it into a database. In effect, a central bank digital currency. Now, as I've mentioned, 
Science fiction has largely been useless at describing the future of the internet and how society will be shaped by the information age. The exception to this is the work of Neil Stevenson. Stevenson's work looks almost prophetic when viewed some 30 years later. The way science fiction, of course, should work. His Snow Crash novel invented the term metaverse, for better or worse, I guess, and like Alongside Night, it sees the United States ribbon with hyperinflation and the use of alternative currencies and even early forms of encrypted online transactions. The metaverse was a term invented by Stevenson to describe new layers of the internet. These ideas have gained traction even in the last few months, with Facebook essentially wanting to be the forerunner of L. Bob Rive's network. But that's for another podcast. What really interests me in Stevenson's work is the novel Cryptomicon, which is totemic at 918 pages and features Alan Turing, Albert Einstein, Douglas MacArthur, Churchill, Admiral Yamamoto, Carl Donitz, Hermann Goring, and Ronald Reagan as characters. But it is a novel primarily concerned with cryptography and money, and so it is of some interest to us. The novel has many interesting passages, which may have influenced Satoshi if he ever read it, which, judging by his omnipotence, he might have done. Quote, Harvard Lee needs electronic cash. Not the lame stuff that people use to buy t-shirts on the web without giving away their credit card numbers. He needs the full-on badass kind based on hard crypto rooted in an offshore data haven and he needs it bad. Close quotes. Quote, A year from now, instead of going to the bank and talking to a human being, you will simply launch this piece of software from anywhere in the world, Cantrell says and communicates with the crypt. What's the crypt? Secure, anonymous, unregulated data storage. Banks used to issue their own currencies. You can see these old banknotes in the Smithsonian. First National Bank of South Bumfuck will remit 10 pork bellies to the bearer, or whatever. They had to stop because commerce became non-local. You needed to be able to take your money with you when you went out west, or whatever. But if you're online, the whole world is local. Close quotes. Yet, the development of a digital currency, which is the main thrust of the novel, is much more similar to the digital payments conceived of in earlier generations. The following passage describes the currency more fully. Quote, Get a big pile of gold. Issue certificates saying, This certificate can be redeemed for such and such an amount of gold. That's all there is to it. What's wrong with dollars and yen and stuff? The certificates, the banknotes, are printed on paper. We're going to issue electronic banknotes. Close quotes. So the theory behind this digital currency is that the electronic banknotes are backed by gold. The search for a huge amount of gold becomes the primary focus of the novel, and it contains many interesting concepts that could have worked for a time pre-Satoshi, but we don't live in a pre-Satoshi era. The crypt, as it is called, is like a centralised mint, and the electronic banknotes make the money in the novel feel much more like a corporate central bank digital currency than anything else. Stevenson may well have been ahead of his time, basing a 900-page novel 
on a very loose concept of electronic money that the NSA too had previously theorised about, but he wasn't quite prophetic enough to have predicted the coming of Bitcoin. Nevertheless, it was around this time where we started to inch towards more novel forms of electronic stores of value, which, conceptually at least, appear closer to Bitcoin than those of pure electronic cash. This is the idea of digital collectibles or purely digital forms of gold. In the late 1990s, we got two projects close enough to Bitcoin that one could probably describe them as proto-cryptocurrencies. Firstly was Wei Dai's attempt called B-Money, which was described as quote-unquote money impossible to regulate. It has been said by Dai himself that Satoshi had never read Dai's article, and some might say that Satoshi essentially reinvented Dai's wheel. Satoshi did later credit Dai, despite not having read his work when originally creating Bitcoin, but Dai's money had proof of work, a collective ledger book, cryptography, and contracts signed through this cryptography. It was an early attempt at a workable pre-Bitcoin coin, though it never launched. It is remarkably similar in many ways to Bitcoin, leading some to speculate Wei Dai himself might be Satoshi. In the same year, Bitgold by Nick Zabo too contained many other elements of what we might call the more revolutionary aspect of Bitcoin, not just electronic cash, but an internet store of value too. Bitgold was less focused on transactions and more as a store of wealth. Bitgold too uses peer-to-peer -to -peer technology and did not have any need for a third party to facilitate payments. Bitgold was not as wide-ranging as Bitcoin, however, and it merely attempts to replicate precious metals and collectibles in a digital way. Bitgold does contain many of the more radical elements of cryptocurrencies, which could later be found in Bitcoin, described by Nick Zabo thusly. 1. A public string of bits, the challenge string is created. 2. Alice on her computer generates the proof-of-work string from the challenge bit using a benchmark function. 3. The proof-of-work is securely timestamped. This should work in a distributed fashion with several different timestamped services so that no particular timestamped service need be substantially relied on. 4. Alice adds the challenge string and the timestamp proof-of-work string to a distributed property title registry for Bitgold. Here too, no server is substantially relied on to properly operate the registry. 5. The last created string of Bitgold provides the challenge bits for the next created string. 6. To verify that Alice is the owner of a particular string of Bitgold, Bob checks the unforgeable chain of title in the Bitgold title registry. 7. To assay the value of a string of Bitgold, Bob checks and verifies the challenge bits, the proof-of-work string, and the timestamp. Sava's concept of Bitgold does fall down though. It was more like a collector's item than gold. Bitgold was not fungible either. With fungibility only possible with dealers combining different valued pieces of Bitgold to create larger units of approximately equal value. 
This system was later given an upgrade by Hal Finney, who created RPOW, Reusable Proof of Work, where the computer itself acts as the mint. Finney called it a transparent server technique. Sabo admitted the main problem with this system was that its proof of work mechanism was not perfect. It meant a very low cost producer could swamp the market with bit gold. In Zabo's concept, the proof of work was therefore limited, as supply was based on absolute proof of work, not limited by relative computing power like in Satoshi's concept. Finney completes his own analysis of bit gold by saying, quote, The potential for initially hidden supply goods due to hidden improvements in machine architecture is a potential flaw in Bitgold, or at least an imperfection which the initial auctions and ex post changes of Bitgold will have to address. So we finally get to a stage where we can see the groundwork for Bitcoin. We can see many of the elements that Bitcoin would later incorporate. Much of the cryptography had been solved a decade before by Chaum, who worked out on how to send money safely and securely cryptographically. Now Sabo and Dai were getting closer to a final solution of pure internet money by identifying the lack of need for a central mint. The need for a timestamp server and a secure proof-of-work system, a transparent server technique to view transactions, and a digital store of value, not just a facilitator of payments. It is somewhat surprising to me it took 10 years from Wei Dai's proposals and Sabo's to finally get to Bitcoin. Nobody of the following decade took the next logical leap by perfecting the system and releasing it. The 10 years following Bitgold saw very little movement on the idea of cryptographic currency. Perhaps due to the economy soaring, the quickness of banks and e-commerce sites in learning to adapt to the internet it meant there was less demand for native internet currencies. The sheer rapidity of the adoption of the internet meant that the hardcore internet libertarians were swamped by the average person using the internet, perhaps without a full conceptual understanding of how it should be worked. There were other developments like Adam Back's hash hash in the late 90s and early 2000s, which developed proof of work and now it started to appear that there was some development Satoshi could build on. I mention that as I think I should, but I think we'll actually do a whole episode on proof of work and look into Hashcash in more detail. But the proof of work algorithm that Back pioneered was revolutionary for Satoshi as it allowed him to find a solution to the Byzantine general's problem. All these disparate inventions and innovations and processes had to be combined, at the very least with a bit more theoretical work for a workable system to be in place. The system would have to work on a peer-to-peer -peer basis by allowing value to be sent across cyberspace without any sort of limit. It would have to entice people to join the network and to share server space. It would have to be able to grow in a peer-to-peer -peer manner and once it grew, it would have to be able to withstand attacks. Perhaps the reason for the delay in creating a workable decentralised internet currency was in trying to solve the seemingly impossible Byzantine general's problem. The problem was first referenced in a paper published in 1982. 
The name comes from a fictional proposal, referencing a problem of how to send messages without an enemy intercepting the message, yet while all the others in your army receive the message. In the proposal to the Byzantine general's problem, a group of generals try to attack a royal palace. There are multiple armies and multiple generals. The attack can only be successful if more than half of the army attack at the same time. They can only communicate through messengers, but they have no way to check the authenticity of the message they received. How does one achieve consensus? Nobody had quite figured this out before Satoshi came along, and offered a standardised solution for a digital money version of this. You simply needed 50% of the computational power to get consensus. Bitcoin can register dissent before moving on. Satoshi therefore created the first decentralised blockchain, using elements of what Hashcash had developed to timestamp blocks together, chain them together, and use these chain of timestamps to form a blockchain. Some of the rest of Bitcoin's programming, as we've seen, had been theorised and worked out in the decades before Satoshi. From digital payments to a usable proof-of-work mechanism, but it was for Satoshi to fine-tune all of his previous work and to make such an incentive, namely the formation of Bitcoin as a digital asset and a monetary layer of the internet, to incentivize people to use the system, and to prove it was superior to any other monetary form. Satoshi is a genius, don't get me wrong, Bitcoin is his. The Bitcoin system has almost no flaws and works perfectly. But if Satoshi did see further than anybody else, it is because he stood on the shoulders of giants. There is no doubt Satoshi is a genius. Despite some experiments with pre-internet currencies, there had been little development in the 10 years before Satoshi came along. The pre-Bitcoin crypto coins were a long way off from being a workable decentralized internet currency. Adam Back's hash cash and the use of proof-of-work mechanism and forms of digital gold and digital collectibles had been circling around the space. Yet Satoshi managed to put everything that had come before and by combining it with a proof-of-work mechanism, digital payment service and a form of digital gold, he or she, in effect, solved the problems of money. Like we see in our 100 Greatest Inventions podcast, all the greatest inventions spend a long time in development and theoretical stage before they ever reach implementation stage. Bitcoin is no different, from the earliest seeds in Henry Ford and Thomas Edison's mind to the first science fiction adventures in the Neil Stevenson's books, the 1990s really saw the development of potential for cryptography in its use of money. Yet it still needed that element of genius to get it working. We could have spent the 2010s and 2020s in a seemingly perpetual state of disappointment as cryptographers and computer scientists work with what came before to get the best peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system working. Yet there was no need for that. Satoshi saw much of what came before, building on work like Hash Cash and Hal Finney's and Nick Zabo's which in turn being based on David Chalm's work and put it all together. Satoshi figured out how to get it all connected, 
how to solve the Byzantine general's problem and create the world's first working digital decentralized blockchain. And then, perhaps most remarkably, work on getting the correct incentive structures and the game theory right so the system would grow naturally and constantly. Building up slowly at first and building up a resilience to low level attacks before the system could get the attention of central bankers. And by the time it had their attention, it was already far too powerful to be taken down. That Bitcoin works as well as it does is a gift from the mind of Satoshi. But let's not forget he was building on much of what came before, some of it good and some of it mere speculation. But even these speculators could not quite have perceived how immensely impactful and perfect the final system would be. So thanks for listening. Next time we'll do a deep dive into Francis Fukuyama's end of history thesis and how it applies to Bitcoin. See you then.